You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. Can I trust God? Can I trust God? It's one of the biggest questions in life. And it's really a simple question on the face of things, right? Can I trust God? Yes or no? But it's not so simple of a question, is it? There are no glib answers to this. There are no easy things that we can just say, oh, yeah, yeah, I can trust God, no problem. There's a lot of wrestling that goes on. And this answer for suffering people has not been simple. And Harold was one of those people. Harold's three-year-old son, Aaron, was diagnosed with progeria, which is a rare genetic disorder where the body ages rapidly. At the age of 10, uh, Aaron was the equivalent of a 65-year-old man. By the age of 13, when he should have been running and coming into the prime of life, he was the size of a toddler weighing 25 pounds, just over three feet tall. And this condition, as you can imagine, uh, is is fatal. And he passed away, sadly, two days after his 14th birthday. And as Harold grieved this tragedy, he grew up in a religious household, he wrestled with God. And as he wrestled, there there were things about his situation, he just said, "I I can't reconcile that with God. And specifically, it was God's sovereignty, God's control. He wrote this, if the death of my son was God's plan, it's a bad bargain. I don't want to have to deal with a God like that. Eventually, he came to what he called an accommodation with God, believing that while God was loving and good, he wasn't sovereign. He wasn't all-powerful. He couldn't be in control of evil. And he published his struggle in a best-selling book back in the 80s entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Perhaps you've heard of this man, Rabbi Harold Kushner. Uh, In fact, our book of the month last July and August, Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God, really was written as a response to Harold's topic, Harold's main point. And, And his main point was that God doesn't sovereignly control life. He's powerless to stop the laws of nature from working. Now, he's He's kind and he's loving and he empathizes with you in your suffering and he he tries to assure you and he grieves with you, but he's, like you and I, powerless to control bad things from happening. Can we trust God? Rabbi Kushner, who died last year, would say, no, God can't be trusted because you can't trust someone who has no ability to control the future. And I I empathize with this man. I empathize with him losing a son. And he experienced the full brunt of grief and weight of living in a broken world. Yet his conclusion leaves us with no comfort. It leaves us with no hope. God is just kind of out there empathetic. Well, what good does that do? There are a lot of empathetic people in this room. But in your suffering, do you want more empathy? You probably want answers. You want someone who can do something about it. Perhaps you're wrestling with this question, can I trust God? Or maybe it's, can I even trust God? 
Can I trust God? Can I trust God? The point of emphasis may be slightly different from person to person, but we're still perhaps wrestling with the same question. And you've been cut deeply by the brokenness of life. You're wondering, is God out there? Does he exist? Is he there? Does does he care? Can I trust him? Habakkuk says yes. Habakkuk says you can trust God. And by the end of this little book, he learns that God can be trusted. As we've seen over the last few weeks, he begins with this burden. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, the burden of Habakkuk. And he, he turns to the Lord in his grief and his lament and his confusion. And he says, Lord, here's my burden. Why are you allowing evil to go unpunished? How long will it be before you intervene and act? And God replies to him and says, oh, I, Habakkuk, I already know. And I've got a solution for that. My solution is I'm going to send the wicked Babylonian nation to conquer the evil around you with your people, Judah, who are my people. And Habakkuk, I can imagine, says, well, that answers one question, but that leads to a whole bigger question. The injustice in Judah is one thing because we're your people. So how are you going to use a wicked nation to judge a more righteous one? How can you who are holy... Of purer eyes than to behold evil, he says. Use someone so wicked. And yet Habakkuk says, I I, I don't know. And I'm going to wait. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will wait like a watchman on the wall. I I will wait for God to correct me. He has a spirit of openness and humility. And God comes to him in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. And says, Habakkuk, I'm going to give you an answer, but it's not yet. And if, if it feels like it's going to take a long time in coming, wait for it. It won't delay. It'll come, but you have to wait. And in the meantime, you have a choice to make. You can either be arrogant and say, well, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live on my own terms. I'm going to explain things in my own way. Or I'm going to live by faith. And that famous line of the Reformation era, the just shall live by faith, comes from Habakkuk 2.4. And then God gives him a, a lengthier answer. God says in Habakkuk 2.5 through 20, that he is going to judge the Babylonian pride. He's going to take these wicked people who are violent and needlessly shedding blood, and he's going to judge them. But it's going to take time. In fact, it's going to take so much time that Habakkuk won't even see that. It's not going to be in his lifetime. But God's encouragement is to remember that in the end, God does judge evil. He is just. And second, Habakkuk needs to take the long view of history. To to look to the future and say, it may not all make sense right now, but eventually God will act. Because buried in that passage of woes and afflictions and judgment and doom and gloom is this little gem, Habakkuk 2.14. There will come a day when the whole earth is covered with the glory of the Lord. When the knowledge of him spreads from ocean to ocean. And that references the time in the future when Jesus will return and set up his kingdom. When all wrong will be made right. And so Habakkuk has a partial answer. Live by faith, look to the future, it'll all work out in the end. But that doesn't solve his dilemma in the meantime, right? We know in our situation that eventually God will come back. Jesus will return. He will set up his kingdom. His coming is what we hope for. But in the meantime... 
We live in a broken world. So how are we supposed to live now while we wait for the then to come? And that's Habakkuk's question. Even if he lives by faith and takes the long view of history, he still has to wait for God to act. So how does he persevere through the the trials, the challenges of life? He learns to trust God. How do we persevere through the trials and challenges of life? We need to learn to trust God too. That's what he has in chapter 3. And what we'll see is that the practical expression of our faith as we navigate the brokenness of life is a deep, settled, confident trust in God. That's how we evidence our faith. Faith leads us to trust God even in and especially in life's brokenness. It's easy to trust God when things are going smooth, when things are good. It's easy. But when heartache comes, when suffering arrives at our doorstep, that's when we have to trust God even more, when our faith is put to the test. And and I want to be real clear right off the bat. Some people talk about trusting God in a, in a glib or in an insensitive way. Hopefully this has never happened to you. Hopefully you've never said this to people. But in their suffering, if you slap a Bible verse on it, pat them on the back and say, be warmed and filled, everything's good, right? God works all things together for good. So suck it up. That's so insensitive. As someone who's walked through very deep things, I know that. I know that God is good. And I know he works it all for good. So let's not be insensitive with our encouragement. Yes, that, that promise is true, but it doesn't fix the problem in the, in the meantime. And the deeper you're suffering, the more challenging it is to trust God. And it's okay to admit that. It's okay to say, Lord, I, I'm just having a hard time right now. In fact, you may be thinking, I, I want to trust God. I just don't know if I can. Or I don't, I don't know how to trust God. Things are shaking around me so much that that I just don't know what's up and what's down. And the encouragement of this chapter is that there is hope. Habakkuk learned to trust God. And there's a progression here that we'll see. And the good news for you and I is that we can learn to trust God as well. So as we examine Habakkuk 3 this morning, there are, are two simple questions I want to ask and then answer. First, How can we learn to trust God? And then second, what does trust in God look like? First, the progression toward trust. How can we learn to trust God? Well, how does Habakkuk come to a place of trust? Throughout this book, I've noted, and I'll remind us again here, that this is a lament. A lament, as our book of the month says, is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And lament has really four steps. So in the chaos of suffering, this this type of prayer gives us a pathway to articulate the deepest burdens of our hearts. It involves turning to God and then complaining or or honestly giving our burdens to the Lord, being, being just transparent with him because he's strong enough and kind enough to, to handle those things. So there's turning and complaining. Then there's asking. There's a request that's made. And then finally, there's an expression of trust or praise. What Habakkuk does is in chapter 1, he turns to God and he voices his complaint two different times. And then chapter 2 is primarily God's response to that. And here in chapter 3, the first portion of it, 
He asks and he expresses his trust. His prayer request in verses 1 and 2 are the ask step of lament. And this step helps him to trust God, for we learn to trust God when we seek God. Seeking God. Verse 1 says, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet on Shigianoth. That word Shigianoth, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, so forgive me. Uh, That is a musical term. It was probably indicating the tune or the notation to this song to be sung. In verse 19, we'll come to it at the end. There's a note about using this psalm in public worship. So this was meant to be sung. Verse 2 is his prayer. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. Revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. There are three statements here that he prays. First, he's in awe of what God has done in the past for his people. I've heard of your deeds, your speech. I was afraid, O Lord. I stand in awe of them, some modern translations say. And then there's a request. He asks God to work in his day, revive your work, work in our day, just like you worked in the past to deliver us and to save. And then the third thing he says is in wrath, remember mercy. He knows that God is going to judge the wicked, that God's wrath will be poured out. And his request is not that God would stop that, but his request is that, Lord, that that when you're doing that, you would take mercy on us. This is a simple and straightforward prayer. Lord, just as you've done amazing things in the past, do them in our day. And as you pour out your wrath against evil and enforce your justice, Please remember to show us mercy. It's a wonderful prayer. It's a a simple prayer of faith. And as Habakkuk seeks God, he is going to find that his trust begins to increase. Now, what we've seen is that Habakkuk and the Lord are having a, a, a prophetic dialogue. They're going back and forth. He asks a question, God answers. He asks a question, God answers. He prays here in chapter 3, verse 2, and God answers and he answers in an in a incredible way in verses 3 through 15. God appears. God reveals himself to Habakkuk. And what this shows us is that to trust God, we need to see God. And there's some debate in verses 3 through 15 about what these verses are talking about. Is this simply a, a poetic way to describe uh, a dramatic recounting of Israel's history? Perhaps. Uh, is this a vision that Habakkuk sees? It could be. Or is this a literal theophany? The word theophany is a Greek word, the- theos meaning God, theani, <laughs> uh, coming from the word appearance. Is this an appearance of God? I actually think it is an appearance of God. For two main reasons. Number one, in verse three, it says God came and it gives a direction that we'll see in a moment. Then in verse 16, if you glance down there, Habakkuk isn't just having a vision. He has a very physical, visceral response to it. And there were some times like Ezekiel, the prophet who had a vision and had a response to it. So it could be a vision. It could be an appearance of God. I'm not going to press the two. The point is God reveals himself in glory to this man. And Habakkuk is changed. 
What did Habakkuk see? Well, in verse 3, God, the Holy One, came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Now, that word Selah is found throughout the Psalms, and we're not quite sure exactly what it means, but it seems like it's, it's take a pause or a meditation break. Here, Habakkuk gets basically two lines of poetry out and says, I need to think about this. Why does he need to stop to think? Because of what happened. God came. And these references from Teman, Taman, Mount Paran, these are both in southeast Israel in modern-day Jordan. They're southeast of Israel in modern-day Jordan. And what's significant here is that this is the same route that God led the people of Israel through when they came out of the wilderness and into the promised land. This was the same pathway. And by taking the same route, God was reminding his people that he was the same God. That just as he led them powerfully in the past, he will lead them powerfully into the future. The miracles that he did in times past are not confined to that era. And as we read verses 3 through 15, we're going to try to just summarize it quickly. There's a lot of interesting things here, but I want us to keep the big picture in mind. There's a lot of references back to the Exodus and the Red Sea, the wilderness and the conquest of Canaan. Because God is showing Habakkuk, yes, I am coming, but the same God that you worship that did all these things back then is still me today. And that's our message too. We don't talk about God as being the one that was around 1500 B.C. or 1000 B.C. or 500 B.C. He's still the same God today. He's our God. We can trust him. The picture in verses 3 through 5 is of a mighty thunderstorm, a majestic warrior coming to conquer his enemies and rescue his people. Let's read it. His glory covered the heavens The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand like like lightning, as it were. There was power. There his power was hidden. Before him went pestilence. Fever followed at his feet. There were several times in the Old Testament that plague was used as a weapon of the Lord. We're going to see it in, in our Sunday school hour in a couple weeks when the Ark of the Covenant went to the Philistines. And there's plague that's that's coming through. And the picture of a mighty thunderstorm reminds us that God is powerful. And it's similar to how God answered Job out of the whirlwind. And how God descended on Mount Sinai to give the law in a a thunderstorm. With fire and dark rumblings and clouds. He is majestic and powerful. Verses 6 and 7. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations The everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed down to him. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. Even the mountains crumbled before God. He measures the earth because he's so great. And all the desert peoples, the tents of Kushan and and the curtains of Midian, all the people who dwell like nomads in the desert, they're shaking because he is coming over them and moving toward Habakkuk. And in verses 8 through 15, God arrives and he accomplishes his victory. In verses 8 and 9, he prepares for battle. O Lord, 
Were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea? That you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation. Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows, or you gathered your arrows together. God is preparing for war. Like a mighty warrior riding in his chariot. And again, his anger against the rivers and the sea, that's a reference back to the Jordan River crossing, the Red Sea crossing, where God miraculously parted the waters to let his people go through. He is so great and powerful that even the, the seas obey him. Verses 9 through 12, we read about God crushing his enemies. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep sea uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. It's like the majestic parts of creation are bowing down to God and are being used as weapons in his arsenal. He is great. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their habitation. Does that sound familiar? That reference is back to Joshua 10, where Joshua told the sun to stand still so that God could work his deliverance for his people. And here again, the sun and the moon are standing still before their God. At the light of, the, of his arrows they went, at the shining of his glittering spear. Verse 12, you marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. That word trampled is really picturesque. To an agrarian society, they would have understood immediately because it's the word for thresh. Perhaps your translation even uses that. God is going to come to thresh his enemies. Well, threshing is that process of separating the heads of grain from the chaff or the stalks. And we have farm machinery that does that today. But back in this day, they would have to beat the grain and separate the heads forcefully from the chaff and then throw the chaff and the chaff would blow in the wind and the heads would settle. But to do that, it had much violence. It had a lot of effort. And when God comes to thresh the nations, he's not coming to negotiate. He's coming to defend his people. And that's the focus of 13 through 15. God is not just going to destroy his enemies. He's not a rampaging God like King Kong that's out on the loose. He is coming to defend his people. Verse 13, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck. In other words, he utterly destroyed them. Like a, like a poisonous serpent, he cut its head off and he won a victory. 14, you thrust through with his own arrows the head of the villages, talking about his enemies. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. So, in other words, all these people who were proudly boasting and taking advantage of the poor and the needy, God is going to come and defeat them. Verse 15, you walked through the sea with your horses, through the heap of great waters. Who can fight against the God who rides the mountains and walks across the seas? What a display of God's glory this is. And yet it's not just this, this incredible, powerful exhibition of might. This is not some war game that God is doing. God is coming to save his people. And the effect on Habakkuk is immense. Because 
God told him to wait for the answer, and the answer is, I will come. Look at me. I'm here. And when God shows up, all the earth will be in silence before him. And he asks his people to live like pilgrims in this life, to live like sojourners, because we are. We endure the ups and the downs and the trials of life, but we endure it not by gritting our teeth, we, we endure it with hope. Because eventually this God will come and save us. It's a frightening, frightening picture for those who are apart from the Lord. But what a comfort it is. Just like if, if your child, I have three young boys as you know, if, if one of them is in distress and there's an animal attacking them or a, a bully afflicting them, my presence scares the bully or the animal away, but it delivers my child. That's God's doing with us. To learn to trust God. We need to see God. And for this judgment, this warrior to be a comfort to you, you have to be one of his children. Because if you're not one of his children, you're on the other side. You're on the receiving end of this brunt. There is no middle ground with the Lord. Jesus said, whoever is not against us is for us. And if you're here thinking and wrestling and I'm not sure who this God is, he is real, he loves you, and he wants to save you. But you have to humble yourself and repent and trust him as Savior. We'll come back to that idea in a few moments because you can't trust someone you don't know. Habakkuk knows God and he is learning to trust God after seeing God. Now, don't go out into the mountains this this week and ask God to show up like this. He's not going to do this. Instead, where do we behold God 2 Corinthians 3 says that we behold the face of Christ through the scriptures. We have passages like this that we can read. The Psalms especially are filled with explanations of who God is. And if we're wrestling with trusting him, sometimes we need to just simply look and see him. And calm our hearts with him. We learn that God is answers prayer and he remembers mercy and he's majestic and full of power and glory, a warrior who defends his people. And what effect did those truths have on Habakkuk? Well, he understood that he had all he needed with God. This is, this is what's called God's sufficiency. It's a wonderful attribute that as long as I have God, I have all that I need. Again, does that make life easy? No. But as long as we have God, we have more than we need. And Habakkuk chose to trust God. And he expresses that trust in verses 16 through 19. So what does trust in God look like? Here's what he says. When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness, decay entered my bones. And I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. 
He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. Habakkuk expresses his trust in a very poetic, beautiful way. He says it far better than I ever could. Well, what is trust? Before we talk about expressing trust, what does trust look like for us? Trust is a deep, settled confidence in God's ability to accomplish his will. It's deep as opposed to shallow. And the silver lining of suffering is that it it deepens us. And our trust grows more and more. It's settled as opposed to shaken or shifting or stirred. It's a confidence as opposed to cynicism, wishful thinking, or despair. And it's not a confidence in ourselves. It's a confidence in God's ability because with him, all things are possible. He can do what he promises to do. That's what trust is. How does Habakkuk express this deep, settled confidence in God's ability? Well, there are four things that he says or points to. First, he quietly rests. And in verse 16, there's a physical and a spiritual response to God. The physical response is his heart pounded. He heard God. His lips quivered. His knees knocked together. He was physically moved. His encounter with God left an impression. But it wasn't just overwhelming to him physically. His, his spiritual response is that his attitude has changed. He's accepted what is to come. He says, I am going to quietly wait or patiently wait for God to work. He is waiting for God to inflict his judgment on his enemies. Habakkuk understood that it had to get worse before it got better. There was no preventing the evil that was coming, but but he was content to take the long view and say, I'm going to wait because God will eventually work. And while I trust, I'm going to quietly rest. He wasn't anxious. And anxiety is a huge obstacle to trusting God because anxiety is our wrestling over what we can't control. Trusting God is is setting our hope in him when we can't control things. Anxiety is a nervous fretting about things. Trust brings stillness of heart. It holds firmly to truth in spite of the turbulence around us. Uh, Last August, we took a vacation to the Outer Banks, and we were there through Hurricane Ida, Idalia. And I woke up, I told a couple of you this, I woke up, uh, that th- I think it was a Thursday morning. We, I woke up, and most of those beach houses are on stilts, right? I woke up, and I felt like I was on a boat because we were swaying back and forth in the wind, and I thought, no, it must be my mind playing tricks on me. And, and I think I woke Kate up, sorry, uh, and said, are we swaying? And she was kind of like, yeah, there's nothing I can do about it. True. <laughs> uh, and I I was freaking out. I don't do that normally. I'm usually pretty steady. I was nervous. I'm laying in bed praying, <laughs> Lord, please, please, please. And we get up and, and, and we're going through the day and, and our boys are like, well, it's raining out. We're going to watch TV, right? Yeah, we watched like four movies that day. My head was about to explode by the end of it. <laughs> and the whole time, they're, they're just simply living life because they're, they don't know to not worry. I'm over here worried. 
And yet through this storm, they're simply just resting. They don't know that houses collapse. I do. And yet, what does God want us to do? Does he want us to worry about all the possible outcomes? Does he want us to have this storm that's on the outside now invade our heart and disrupt our heart? No, he wants us to have settledness. And it's possible when we trust. Does that mean you do it once and everything's good? No, I think I repeated truth to myself over and over and over again that day. And sometimes we have to remember truth over and over and over again. But God does bring quiet rest. The second thing Habakkuk says or points to is unexplainable joy. You you mean to say that even in my heartache I can have joy? Yes, it is possible to cry and laugh and to cry in, in, in 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 a joyful way at the same time. It's a paradox because it's unexplainable. And what Habakkuk says in verses 17 through 18, I think are some of the most beautiful expressions of trust in the entire Bible. What does he say? How far will Habakkuk trust God? He'll trust him even when calamity strikes. And he lists several things. You probably noticed that as we read through. He lists several things to show the extent of his trust in God. And each of these losses accumulate. They they grow in intensity the further we go. Let me try to explain them as, as we look at this verse again. Though the fig tree may not blossom. So figs were delicacies. They were luxury items. Nice to have, but non-essential. Like chocolate. Like eating out. Nice to have, but you can do without them. Uh, Nor fruit beyond the vine. The fruit here is talking about grapes. Some of your translations even use the word grapes. Grapes were a food garnish. But they also produced wine. There wasn't a whole lot of drinking options in that culture, and so the wine would actually purify the drinking water so they didn't have things in the water that you don't want to drink. But if you didn't have it, it's not dire. It's definitely inconvenient. And there may be some health challenges. It would be like for us today not having supermarkets within 30 minutes of us. It would be like having no internet or Wi-Fi. It would be like having to drink instant coffee. be inconvenient, but it's not going to kill you. Though the labor of the olive may fail, well, olives were a staple of that economy. They produced oil for cooking, and they they were burned for light. And now we're getting into difficult territory, and I think a modern equivalent would be something like electricity in our culture. If electricity was shut off for an extended period of time, that would get kind of dicey because we're so dependent on that. But he continues, he's only halfway through his list. The fields yield no food. Well, that's easy to understand. There's famine, and famine means starvation. And think back just a couple years ago to how people behaved in supermarkets during COVID when they couldn't get the toilet paper that they needed or the box of cereal that they wanted. And think of what actual famine would be like in our country. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold, sheep in particular were were used for food and clothing and other items. And in this scenario, now there's no grain to eat, and there's no meat for sale, and there's no clothing available readily. And there'd be no herd in the stalls. Now, herd for us uh, is milk or dairy or meat. Uh, 
for them, they didn't really eat the meat. They, they used the cattle primarily for, as like farm equipment to plow the fields or to carry wagons. It would be like not having vehicles anymore. The loss of these things, of any one of these things would make living challenging, but the loss of all these things would make survival difficult. And that's his point. Even if I would go to the end of my existence, even if I'm starving, I will trust the Lord. Like Job before him, Habakkuk would affirm, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Is that our attitude? We're very comfortable people here in America. Very comfortable. We think deprivation is is our internet speed being slow. I make a joke about coffee because it's true. And if I had to drink instant coffee, it would be a challenge. We're spoiled. Is this our attitude? Can we rejoice even in adversity? Trust, I think, is proved not in the good times, but in the bad. That was Satan's attack against Job. Well, of course Job trusts you, God. You give him everything he wants. God said, take it away. He'll still trust me. Would that be said of you? How can Habakkuk express this trust with joy? It's really because his faith is not dependent on his, suf- on his stomach or his wallet or his level of comfort. His faith is in God. And that doesn't mean that life is easy or life is happy. Life is heavy. It's hard. Yet, we can possess an unexplainable joy when we set our trust in the Lord. But Habakkuk goes on, verse 19, there's a supernatural stability here that shows that, that that's for those who trust the Lord. Habakkuk declares that God is my strength. And if you're here thinking and feeling like you can't go on, the grief is too great, the burden too heavy, God says he'll be your strength. The Lord Almighty who created heaven and earth will be your strength. And Habakkuk uses a metaphor here in verse 19, like a a hind in the King James, a a female deer on mountainous places. We've been to to traveling to different places in the world where you see goats in the cliffs, and it looks like they're perched on the middle of nothing, on a sheer face. And yet these goats or these, these deer pick their way through these very challenging, deadly even, trails that I would never go near And yet they're just picking their way through it without a care in the world. That's the metaphor for someone who trusts in the Lord. Yes, there are dangerous places, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Yet we don't fear evil. Why? Because he is with us. He is shepherding us. Suffering feels like a room that is spinning around us and there's nothing to hold on to. And yet the comfort here is that God is the one holding on to us. He's our strength. We're safe in his arms. Then finally, trust is expressed in authentic worship. The last phrase of verse 19 are two musical notations to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. Instruments Just sounded like a New Englander there, I'm sorry. Stringed instruments. This song that Habakkuk wrote was meant to be sung in worship. Not just for him, but for the community at large, because this is, this is the mystery of being a child of God. 
is that we can have intense suffering and yet worship still. What did Job do? When he lost everything, he shaved his head and bowed down and worshiped. He worshiped. And this worship is authentic because it emerges from the depths of our souls. Suffering strips us down to the studs, but trusting God gives us a song on the ash heap. If we only worship God when we get what we want, we're not really worshiping God, are we? We're not worshiping the true God who gives and takes away. We're worshiping the God who gives us things for my benefit. It's really a false projection of God. And, and, and if we're worshiping God only when we get things, it's, it's no different than the worldly person who worships money or influence because of the benefits they give them. They're simply putting their faith in things that provide a benefit. And yet, our God is worth worshiping at all times through the good and the bad, in pain and in joy. So let's come back to that question I raised at the very beginning. Can you trust God? Can you trust God? Habakkuk has shown us, yes, it is possible to trust God even in a broken world. He learned to trust by seeking God and seeing God, which really shows us another key principle. Our trust in God is rooted in the character of God. That's where our trust emerges from. Because remember, trust is not confidence in me. It's deep, settled confidence in God's ability to do his will, to accomplish his pleasure. Psalm 910 says, those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. That, that means that you can't trust someone you don't know. It's hard to trust someone that you don't know. And if you're not a believer today, it's going to be well nigh impossible to trust God because you're not even part of his family yet. That's the first step toward trusting God is, is to trust him for your eternal salvation. And if you're not willing to do that, then of course you're not going to be willing to trust him for your suffering. For those of us who are believers, the deeper we know God, the more comfort there is to be found in God. And yet, Habakkuk shows us that it's not a simple equation. The more I know about God in my head, the easier it is to trust. He shows us that that's not quite true either. Because the more we know about God, he, there's still a struggle at times, right? Trusting him may still not come easily. Because the more you know about God, the more something doesn't make sense, perhaps. That's what that's what Habakkuk had. You're holy and you're righteous, so why are you using evil? And you may be sitting here thinking, yeah, I know God is good and I know he's in control, but why did he do that? Why did he let this? Why am I suffering these things? Maybe you know that God is good and sovereign, but instead of giving you comfort, that's only led to more questions. You don't know why these things are in your life and you're struggling to trust God. And like I said at the beginning, it's okay to struggle. God is gracious toward us. There is an encouragement to be found that understanding God is not a prerequisite for trusting God. That's my former pastor, Greg Stites. Faith encourages us to trust God even when we don't understand because ultimately God's in control. And that's so hard. Because 
not only do we struggle to understand God, but our feelings sometimes are screaming things at us that you never have thought before. And so swirling emotions make it hard to trust God. Suffering and grief have a disorienting quality to them. You start questioning things you've always believed or you're worrying about truths you never doubted before. And if that's what you're thinking, you are not alone. They say in in flying airplanes that airline pilots are taught always to trust their instruments. Because flying can mess with your physical senses. You may feel like you're going straight up in the air and actually you're in a tailspin. And, and yet, what do the instruments do? They never lie. They always tell you the truth. And if you simply fly by your instruments, you will get through safely. Many crashes happen because pilots say, no, that can't be right, that can't be right, and they don't trust their instruments. It may feel like you're a prisoner to your feelings. It may feel like up is down and left is right and backwards is forwards. And it may feel like your feelings have pinned you down and won't let you back up again. Because that's how Jerry Bridges described his adversity. He said, I feel like I've been weighted down. And he said this, in my adversity, I was a prisoner to my feelings. I mistakenly thought that I could not trust God unless I felt like trusting him, which I almost never did in times of adversity. Now I'm learning that trusting God is first of all a matter of the will and is not dependent on my feelings. I chose to trust God and eventually, I choose to trust God and eventually my feelings follow. But how do you trust God when the emotions are swirling? It really starts by being willing to help, to be helped. John Newton shows us this. He's the author of Amazing Grace. He was the pastor for over 40 years in in England He watched his wife slowly die of cancer. And as he walked through that experience, here's what he wrote. It was about two or three months before her death when I was walking up and down the room, offering disjointed prayers from a heart torn with distress that a thought suddenly struck me with unusual force to this effect. The promises of God must be true. Surely the Lord will help me if I am willing to be helped. I instantly said aloud, Lord, I am helpless indeed in myself, but I hope that I'm willing without reserve that you should help me. You see, he didn't have this dramatic encounter with God or this great movement toward God. He didn't even ask God to take his burden. He simply said, Lord, I'm willing to be helped. Would you help me? That was the start for John Newton. And maybe that's the start that you need. So many people in a broken world, carry pieces of pain lodged in their hearts. Life has shattered around them, and instead of healing, it's just created scar tissue. The comfort from God's word from this book of Habakkuk is that God can be trusted, even in and especially in life's hardships. So my friend, I would encourage you to simply ask the Lord to help you Wherever you are in your journey, maybe you need to start that path of lament and bring your complaint to the Lord. Maybe you need to turn to him. Maybe you need to trust him. Maybe you need to just simply say, Lord, I'm willing. I need to be healed. I know it, and I don't know where to start, but work in me. And what Jerry Bridges said, when he prayed that prayer like John Newton, he began to see the Spirit of God working in his heart. It's not a smooth process. It's not a quick process. 
But the end is sure. In whatever stage you find yourself in, the Lord will be gracious to you. He will lift you up out of the miry clay and set your feet on a rock. It is possible to live by faith in a broken world. Let's go to the God who helps us to do that. Father, these truths are are weighty. These emotions are heavy. And you know that I've walked through some of these myself the last year. You know the hearts of many of these dear people in in our family that are wrestling with these things, are struggling with them themselves. And there may be some here today that that don't know if they can trust you for their salvation. I pray for them. There may be others who are so afflicted with grief that, that they don't know what they should do. I pray for them that they would just simply open themselves to you. There may be others that have burdens that are are so great, they're trying to carry them on their own. May they give them to you and find help with the body of Christ. There are others, perhaps, that that have expressed their complaint to you and they've prayed, and now they need to trust and they need to to learn as they see you and seek you to, to rest in you. And I pray that as we live by faith this year as a church, that we would have a deep, settled confidence in your ability to accomplish your will. Bless us, we pray, as we do that. And help in our infirmities, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.